Well, hey, everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. So over the last few episodes of our podcast, we have been exploring some of the most memorable moments that have ever taken place on the Olympic stage. And we've been doing that to see what these moments can teach us as we continue to run the race that we call life today. Well, if you've been following this year's Olympic Games, you know that they came to an end over the weekend. And this sermon series is coming to an end with this episode sermon. But before we finish things up, we are going to be exploring one more story. This story takes place during the 1936 Olympic Games, and it's going to teach us a really valuable lesson that we all need to learn as we run the race of life today. So let's get right into this episode's sermon. The year was 1936, and as any good student of history could tell you, the Great Depression was now seven years old, and our involvement in World War II was still three years away. If you wanted to buy a new house in 1936, it would have cost you about $4,000. And if you wanted to buy a new car, it would have sent you back about 600 bucks. And you could have filled that car up with a tank of gas for less than a dollar because gasoline was about about 10 cents a gallon back then. If you opened up a newspaper in 1936, you undoubtedly would have found stories about FDR's election to a second term in the White House for a little building project out west called the Boulder Dam, which we now call the Hoover Dam today. If you had flipped over to the birth announcements in 1936, you might have seen some familiar names like Jim Henson or Mary Tyler Moore, or even a little boy named Jorge Bergoglio who went on to become Pope Francis. If you look at the book reviews in 1936, you might have been among the first to hear about a little novel called Gone with the Wind. But none of those things, whether we're talking about elections or the Great Depression or big construction projects, were the biggest news story of 1936. The biggest news story of 1936 took place about 4,500 miles from where you're sitting this morning, and it revolved around a bunch of games that were being played in Berlin, Germany. That's right, 1936 was an Olympic year. And in 1936, the leader of Germany, the infamous Adolf Hitler, was looking forward to welcoming the world to his nation because he saw the Olympic Games as the perfect venue to prove his master race theory. Now, what you may not know about the 1936 Olympics is just how well the German athletes actually performed. In those 1936 games, the German team brought home more gold medals than almost any other team brought home in total medals. By the end of the events, the Germans had won 89 total medals, including 33 gold medals. And just to put that in perspective for you, that's pretty similar to what the Chinese team has done at this year's Olympics, bringing in 88 total medals and 38 golds. And what the Germans did in 1936, bringing home those 89 total medals, those 33 gold medals, it far outpaced the second place American team, who won 56 total medals that year. So the German athletes' performance during those 36 Olympic Games, it did little to help Adolf Hitler's opinion on outsiders. And as we are all too well aware, those opinions ultimately led to the slaughter of 12 million people including 6 million Jews, 2 million Polish people, and 4 million others that Hitler and his followers simply deemed to be 
I'm working outsiders. But this stark history, these difficult statistics that we just heard, they do speak to an all too real, all too harsh reality of our human experience. And that's that some people believe that they are simply better than others. Some people believe that they are simply better than others. And this is a belief that has manifested itself across continents and throughout history. This is a belief that has played out right here in the United States of America as African Americans were bought and sold as slaves for hundreds of years. This is a belief that played out during the Crusades as Christian soldiers marched across Europe to begin wars with Muslims in the East. This belief played out in the ancient world as the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans all sought to expand their empires while at the same time subduing the barbarians. This is even a belief that plays out inside the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, as we see the people of Israel working to reclaim the Promised Land and annihilating virtually anyone who wasn't part of their group. And even after the people of Israel had reclaimed the Promised Land, they continued to keep outsiders at arm's length. So it's safe to say that there were at least some people in the kingdom of Israel who thought of outsiders with dissent. They commonly referred to these outsiders as Gentiles. And Gentiles were seen as being unfit, unworthy, unclean, and unable to enter into the presence of God. And the Jews, the people of Israel, were so serious about keeping their sacred place and their God sacred that inside of the temple they made sure that there were certain areas that the Gentiles were not allowed to enter into. But getting back to the 1936 Olympic Games, the interesting thing about those games is that nobody actually remembers how well the German team performed. Nobody remembers the 89 total medals and 33 gold medals that they won at those games. Those are essentially lost to history. But what people remember about the 1936 Olympic Games is the individual accomplishments of another athlete. But to understand and appreciate that athlete's story, we need to go back a little bit further than 1936. And this athlete's story actually begins on September 12, 1913 when his parents, Henry and Emma Owens, welcomed their newborn baby boy into the world. But his athletic career didn't really start taking off until 1928 in Cleveland, Ohio, when he was in junior high school. And while he was in junior high school in 1928, this athlete set the junior high school world record in the high jump, jumping six feet in the air, and in the long jump, jumping 22 feet, 11 and three quarters inches. And he only got better the older he got. By the time he made it into high school, he was basically winning any event that he competed in, which included winning three consecutive state championships in Ohio. During his senior year in high school, he was able to travel to Chicago, Illinois, and compete in the National Interscholastic Meet that was held there. And during that event, he ran a 100-yard dash in 9.4 seconds, setting a high school world record in that event. But the really amazing thing is that 9.4 seconds he ran the 100-yard dash in, it wasn't just a high school record. It tied the world record for any athlete of any age at the time. And he wasn't finished there. He went on to set another high school world record at the same event in the 220-yard dash, 
running that in 20.7 seconds. And a week earlier in another event, he had set a world record in the long jump, jumping 24 feet, 11 and 3 quarter inches. So just based on that little bit of a resume that I've given you, you can probably figure out that this athlete was highly recruited by dozens of colleges and universities. But ultimately, he decided that he was going to stay a little bit closer to home and attend the Ohio State University, even though the Buckeyes weren't able to offer him a scholarship at the time. But it was during his time at Ohio State that he gave the world a glimpse of what he could accomplish at the 1936 Olympic Games. In the Big Ten Conference Championships that were held on May 25, 1935, this athlete set three world records and tied a fourth, all in a matter of 45 minutes. And as impressive as that is, what makes it even more impressive is going into the meet, he wasn't even sure if he was going to be able to compete because he had fallen down a flight of stairs and had injured his back. So he actually had to go to his track coach at the start of the meet and beg to be allowed to try the 100-yard dash just to test out his back and see how he was doing. Well, it's safe to say he passed that test with flying colors because he ran the 100-yard dash in 9.4 seconds, tying his own world record again. From there, he went on to compete in three other events, and he set three other world records. So in the span of just 45 minutes, about the same amount of time that we'll spend in worship today, this athlete accomplished a feat that is still considered by most experts to be the greatest athletic feat in history, setting three world records, tying the fourth, and some of track and field's most difficult distances. Well, his performance at those Big Ten games in 1935, they gave this athlete all the confidence that he needed to go and compete on the biggest stage in his sport in Berlin in the 1936 Olympics. And although Adolf Hitler saw the 36 Olympics as the opportunity to prove the superiority of the so-called master race, this athlete, he had other plans. During the 36 Olympic Games, he accomplished something that no other track and field athlete had ever accomplished before. He won four gold medals in the events. That was something that wouldn't be done again for almost 50 years. No other athlete won four gold medals at a single Olympic Games in track and field until 1984, when Carl Lewis did. But that's not the entire story of this incredible athlete. So to borrow a page from Paul Harvey's book, and now the rest of the story. This incredible athlete who stood on the top of the Olympic podium four different times to receive four different gold medals was not just an American athlete. As it turns out, before his family moved to Cleveland, Ohio, when he was nine years old, this man had grown up in Alabama, where his dad was a sharecropper. And his dad's dad was a slave. This incredible athlete, this American hero, was also an African American. And during a time of deep-seated segregation right here in the United States of America, he went to Berlin, Germany, and not only disproved Adolf Hitler's theory of the so-called master race, he also showed that an individual's worth is not determined by their race or their nationality or anything else. Rather, an individual's worth is, the, is determined by their performance. This man's individual performance was so incredible 
that his name has still become virtually synonymous with Olympic greatness. Because competitor, the athlete, the Olympian that we've been talking about today, it's not other than the legendary Jesse Owens. Now, I, so. I think it's kind of funny that in Olympic Games, where Adolf Hitler thought he was going to be able to show off the superiority of his master race, is actually remembered for the performance of an African-American, a person that Adolf Hitler wouldn't have even wanted to shake hands with, someone that Hitler clearly would have felt he was superior to. I also think that it's kind of funny that in our scripture reading for today, we're going to run across a person who comes along and challenges the, superior, the, uh, the, the self-assurance and the superiority complex that some folks in the kingdom of Israel felt. That's right. In a time that was really defined by self-proclaimed religious superiority, somebody is going to show up on the scenes to remind us all, God, God is not a God of superiority. So as we take a look at this story today, we're going to find it inside of the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, the person who comes along and challenges our views of superiority is none other than Jesus. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, but before we do, let me just remind you that we commonly refer to the book of Matthew as a gospel. And we refer to it as a gospel because the word gospel means good news. And inside of the gospel of Matthew, we hear the good news of Jesus. So in this book, we find stories about Jesus' birth and his baptism. We find stories about Jesus' ministry, and we find stories about the miracles that Jesus performed. We find stories about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. But today we're going to focus in on a story that happens before Jesus' ministry even begins. So let's listen to what happens in Matthew chapter 4, where we'll start reading in verse 12. Here's what Matthew writes. Now when Jesus heard that John was arrested, he went to Galilee. He left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, which lies alongside the sea in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, alongside the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who lived in the dark have seen a great light, and a light has come upon those who lived in the region and in the shadow of death. From that time, Jesus began to announce, Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus walked along the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea, because they were fishermen. Come, follow me, he said, and I'll show you how to fish for people. Right away they left their nets and followed him. Now, typically, when we hear this passage read and preached inside of the church, the, the preacher focuses in on that last phrase that Jesus says in the passage, where Jesus says, I'll show you how to fish for people, or as your translation may say, I'll make you fishers of men. But when we only focus in on that last little phrase that Jesus says inside of this passage, we're missing out on an important message from the story. And to understand that the message that this whole story is trying to give us, we actually have to go back to the beginning of this story. And as this story begins, we find that Jesus is on the road once again. He is traveling to another new place. He's traveling to another new town. We're told that he is leaving Nazareth and he is headed to Capernaum. Now, the problem that I often have when I'm reading the Bible, and I 
that you have this problem too, is that when you're reading the Bible and you run across the names of towns or cities, you kind of tune them out because we're not experts on biblical geography. And the names of these towns and places don't mean that much to very many of us. So when Matthew tells us that Jesus is leaving Nazareth to go to Capernaum, he might as well be telling us that Jesus is, living, is leaving Nicaragua and headed to the Czech Republic. Or that Jesus is leaving Neverland and he's headed to Cloud City. Because the names of these places, they just don't mean much to us. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tries to get us to slow down just a little bit and pay attention here. Because Matthew knows that the names of these places are important. And Matthew tries to get us to slow down just a little bit by quoting another passage of Scripture. By quoting the prophet Isaiah when Matthew writes this. Land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, alongside the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who lived in the dark have seen a great light. And a light has come upon those who lived in the region and the shadow of death. Matthew goes on to say, from that time Jesus began to announce, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. So here, with this reference to the prophet Isaiah, we're given a little glimpse of what Capernaum is like when we're told that it's like Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, you remember who the Gentiles are, right? You remember that there were folks that some inside of the kingdom of Israel kept at arm's length and treated like outsiders. You remember that there were folks that some people in the kingdom of Israel thought were unfit, unclean, unworthy, and unable to enter into the presence of God. And you remember what we call those people. Call them Gentiles. And here in this passage, Jesus. Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, very God of very God, he goes out to minister to these Gentiles. He goes out and shines the light of God's love into a place where some of his fellow Israelites felt the love of God didn't belong. And Jesus does this to teach us all an important lesson. Jesus does this to say that the love of God cannot be contained by the superior complex of an individual. The reality is that the love of God cannot be contained by any person at all. Because the love of God is the domain of God and God only. So God chooses who God loves. And God chooses to love us all. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. God chooses to love us all. And God chooses to love us all regardless of our race or our nationality, our political affiliation, our income level, who we love, our finances, anything else that you want to throw in there. God chooses to love us all. And that's the point that Matthew is hinting at when he mentions the names of places like Capernaum. But Matthew doesn't stop just by hinting with telling us that Jesus is headed to a place called Capernaum. Matthew goes on to make this a little bit clearer by telling us the story of Jesus going out and calling Simon and Andrew to be his disciples. And when he tells us that Jesus calls them and tells them that he will make them fishers of men, 
Now, like I said a little bit ago, typically when we hear this passage of Scripture preach, we hear this, this, this call to um, evangelism, that we're going to become fishers of men. We hear this. It's nothing more than a call to evangelism and witnessing. And we get this idea in our head from the preachers that we're all supposed to be casting our line out and reeling in as many lost people as we can, bringing them to Jesus. But when we think of this in those terms, we miss out on some important imagery that is actually used inside the story. Let me take just a minute and see if I can explain what I mean. Think just a second and think about who Simon and Andrew are. Think about what it is that Simon and Andrew do. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Simon and Andrew are fishermen. But when the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Simon and Andrew are fishermen, it's not telling us that these guys are a couple of weekend warriors who just like to stand on the creek shore and enjoy a little bit of solitude while they're getting their line open. And when Matthew tells us that Simon and Andrew are fishermen, he's not telling us that they're amateur anglers who enjoy going out on a boat on Saturday morning on the lake, trying to catch some sort of prize piece, some sort of trophy fish, and casting back anything that doesn't meet their standards. When Matthew tells us that Simon and Andrew are fishermen, he's telling us that they are professional fishermen. Their livelihood, their ability to care for themselves and provide for their families, is solely dependent on their ability to catch fish. What that means is that when Simon and Andrew are getting ready to go out on the Sea of Galilee, they're not going out with a couple of rods and reels. When Simon and Andrew go out on the Sea of Galilee, they're going out with nets. And they're going out to cast these nets so that they can catch as many fish as possible as quickly as they can so they can bring their catch back into the shore and sell it. And the more fish they catch, the more fish they get to sell, the more money they make. And that means that Simon and Andrew, as professional fishermen, they're not in the business of turning any fish away. So, when Jesus goes to them, and Jesus tells them that he is going to make them fishers of men, Jesus knows that Simon and Andrew they're not in the business of looking at a fish and determining its value and worth and figuring out if it's worth keeping in their net or in their boat. He knows that when he tells them that he's going to make them fishers of men, he's talking to professional fishermen who understand what it means. And when Jesus tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men, the expectation is that Simon and Andrew are going to catch their net, cast their nets out as far and as wide as they can to reach as many people as they can with the good news of Jesus. Jesus wants Simon and Andrew to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. Jesus isn't concerned about race, nationality, gender, education level, economic level, or anything else. So what are these stories trying to teach us about Jesus? What point is Matthew trying to make for us here? Well, when you step back and you think about the entire story that we've read, Matthew's point becomes pretty clear. Matthew wants us all to understand that God is not a God of superiority. God is not a God who picks and chooses. God is not a God who distinguishes. Rather, God is a God who loves us all without any exception. God is a God who loves us all without
any exception. So over the last few weeks here at Melbourne Heights, we have been exploring some of the most memorable moments that have ever taken place on the Olympic stage. And we've been exploring these moments to see what they can teach us as we run the race that we call life today. The lesson that we can learn from the story of Jesse Owens and Simon Andrews calling to follow Jesus, one of the most important lessons that we can all learn in life. These stories teach us that God is not a God of security. God is a God who loves us all. God is a God who loves us all without any exception. The problem is that we as people, we like to make exceptions. We as people, we like to choose who's going to be on the inside and who's going to be left on the outside. We as people, we like to choose who is worthy of our time and who is unworthy of our time. We as people, we like to choose who's on the inside and who's on the outside. But as we run the race that we call life, you will never meet a person that God doesn't love. As you run the race of life, you are never going to meet a person that God doesn't love enough to send his son into the world to die for. we continue to run the race of life, we need to approach it through the eyes of God. We need to run the race with love. We need to run the race with a willingness to help other people along the journey. Because we're all in it together. And if we love each other, if we help each other, we're all going to be better off as we race together. Let's pray God, as we come to you in this time of prayer, we thank you for the story that we've heard today of Jesse Owens and his performance of the 1936 Olympic Games and what it proved to the world in a time of racial segregation here in America, at a time when Hitler was trying to build his master race. Jesse Owens' performance reminded us there is no such thing as superiority. We are all valued, not by our race, not by our nationality, but by our contributions to this world. And God, we also thank you for the story that we've heard of Simon and Andrew, and their call to be fishers of men, and what that really means. We as your followers, we're supposed to cast our nets out to reach anyone and everyone, because you're not a God who distinguishes. You're not a God who picks and chooses. You're a God who loves us all. So God, help us to be more like you. Help us to stop picking and choosing and figuring out who's worthy and who isn't worthy of our time. Let us love you. Let us love others. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that the stories of Jesse Owens and of Jesus calling Simon and Andrew, that it has reminded you that God is a God who loves us all without any exceptions. So as we run the race of life, we don't need to make exceptions either. 
We need to do all that we can to love everyone that we meet and help them through this race of life. Well, in our next episode, we are starting into a brand new series of sermons. And in this series, we're going to be exploring what we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, believe. Now, with two and a half billion Christians worldwide, it's hard to imagine that all of us could agree on anything, let alone something as big and as important as God. But there are some things that we all agree on. So I hope that you'll come back and join us when our next episode drops next Tuesday morning. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, it'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And don't forget that you don't have to wait till next Tuesday to join us. You're also invited to come and worship with us every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our church website at mhbclouisville.com slash live. We would love to have you. Well, until next week, I hope that you guys have a great week. I'll be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.